uh, chapter 15. Our scripture reading is going to be Mark chapter 15, um, verses 1 through 21. Is that better? Is that better? What's all right? So, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, as our scripture reading this morning. You notice the title uh, for the message this morning is going to be uh, Jesus before Pilate. Now, I intend to preach over here rather than there, so. If that still picks me up, that's fine. Actually, I'm transmitting through this. Now I see what's going on here. We're not that tech-savvy, folks. We're just figuring this out, making it up as we go along. Uh, The passage of Scripture this morning, uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 21 And I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation. As soon as it was morning, now remember what's happened throughout the night. Jesus has already been before Caiaphas, the high priest, the Sanhedrin has already condemned him. And now it's very early in the morning, and he's been taken over to now the Roman authorities. As soon as it was was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barnabas. Excuse me, you're right, Barabbas. (laughs) And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. He answered them, saying, Do you want to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. 
Let's pray. Father, enable us by your Holy Spirit uh, to see the things in this passage which would testify to us about Jesus in such a way that we will find ourselves loving him more faithfully, that we would be uh, strengthened by what Jesus has done for us, that we might live to the glory of his name. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Now, Mark here takes us in terms of the story uh, from the uh, jurisdiction, the major jurisdiction which the the Jews had through the Sanhedrin in the first part of the trial, uh, to what is now taking place before the Roman authorities, before Pontius Pilate. But what we can easily see as we look through this passage is that Jesus is going to receive the same kind of justice slash injustice uh, from Pilate and what the Roman authorities do uh, in a similar way to the kind of mistreatment that he received through the high priest, only it's going to be in every way so much worse. Yet I want us to pause here and I want us to focus our attention on the faithful testimony that Jesus gives before Pilate. If the high priest uh, said to Jesus under oath, asked Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? To which Jesus responded, I am. If the religious authorities put to Jesus that question, here we have Pilate, the political authority, putting the political question to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And what we see, and we put these two stories together, is the faithful testimony of Christ to who he is. Jesus denies to answer every accusation made against him except these two. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the King of the Jews? Now, I want you to notice what it says in the ESV. If you look at the answer, uh, it says, essentially, you have said so. The NIV says, yes, it is as you say. Uh, The New American Standard and the New King James both say, it is as you say. Uh, The old King James, thou sayest it. Now, in the Greek, literally, all it says is, you say. What we need to understand is that that is one of the strongest ways you could respond in the Greek language in the affirmative. And that's why the translations all make it clear Jesus was saying yes. We do this in English. Um... You know, if you've played rugby all day and uh, you come home and your dad says to you, are you tired? And you go, you said it, <laughs> right? That's exactly the, the implication of what Jesus says here. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is saying, yes, you said it. I certainly am. I am most strongly am the king of the Jews. It was the strongest possible answer that Jesus could make. So the point is that Jesus is plainly and strongly affirming this accusation against him is correct. He is the king of the Jews. And then when you look toward the time of the cross, you notice 
what placard is nailed to the cross under which Jesus is crucified? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in Latin, in Greek, in Aramaic. Now, the title of the King of the Jews in this passage, verses 1 through 21, is used four times in three different ways. That's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at these, the three different ways in which the expression, the King of the Jews, is used in this passage and used against Jesus. It's used as the indictment that ultimately takes him to the cross. It's used as a political ploy and all the machinations between Pilate and the crowd and the chief priest. And then it's used as a mockery when Jesus is being abused by the Roman soldiers. Those three ways in which the title is used. But we're also going to see what God intended in each of those cases with respect to Jesus being the king of the Jews. And so first of all, uh, if we look at the first five verses, Jesus is brought before Pilate. The only accusation that Jesus will answer to is the question, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, The chief priests had brought many charges against Jesus, many accusations. Christ doesn't answer any of them, and Pilate is amazed at this. Uh, But the result of not answering any one of those false charges in terms of this trial is that there's only one charge, one indictment that Pilate can act upon. There's only one. And it's the only one that's true. It's the only thing that Jesus is guilty of before Pilate that the chief priests bring against him. Jesus is guilty of being the king of the Jews. But of course... God's design in all of this was that indictment would be true so that Jesus would die for who he truly was. But what Pilate and the Roman authorities meant as an indictment, God had intended always to be the destiny of his son. So in the death of Jesus, underneath the placard that says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, as the charge by which he died, it is also the reason by which he was born. And we know this from the Christmas story. We know this because we look at this in Matthew almost every year as we read through the story of the Magi coming to Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 2. They appear in Jerusalem, and in verse 2 they say, Where is he who was born to be king of the Jews? That is to say, we have seen his star in the east. We have seen his star when it rose up in the sky. And we've come all this way to find the one who is, in fact, the king of the Jews. We have come to worship him. And then you read in verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2, when they go on to Bethlehem, and they go into the house and they find the mother with the child, and they bow down before him and they worship him, And then they present him with those treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The indictment that brought about Jesus' death was the destiny for which Jesus was born. He was born into this world to be the king of the Jews. Now, how does this connect to us? The first peoples to worship Jesus as the king of the Jews, 
who recognized that the king of the Jews was one to be worshipped were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were those who came from outside of the land of Israel to Israel. In fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, in which God had said, and I will make him a light to the Gentiles. This was his destiny. This is the reason for which he was born. This was the reason for which he died. King of the Jews, the one to whom we would come and worship him. What we see secondly in this passage is that the title, King of the Jews, is then also used as a political ploy. It's used in terms of the the kinds of things that are going on there that have a political undertone all the way through. Pilate behaves in this trial demonstrating his reluctance to condemn Jesus. So when the crowd comes to Pilate and they ask for that favor they get every time each year at the feast in which a prisoner who's been imprisoned by the Romans will be released to them, Pilate anticipates wrongly that they're going to be willing to see Jesus released. And he wants to do this according to verse 6 because Pilate sees the motives of the chief priests. He sees that they have a vendetta of sorts against Jesus. And Pilate is no friend of the religious leadership of Israel. There's an opportunity here for him to do something that's going to thwart their plans against a man that Jesus, that Pilate can find no reason for condemnation. Pilate sees a political opportunity to use the crowds of the Jews against the leadership of the Jews, as it were, to widen the gap between them to Pilate's own political advantage. Gain a little favor with the crowds, lose a little favor with the chief priests, that's all to Pilate's advantage. But what Pilate doesn't understand is he he has already been outmaneuvered in this political game. When we go down to verse 9, we read, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate had not reckoned with how the leadership of the Jewish people had the ability to turn the crowd that five days earlier had heralded Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the son of David, potentially the Messiah of Israel, to take that great affirmation of who Jesus was and to turn that 180 degrees so that now the response that Pilate receives is not the response that Pilate anticipates. When he asks them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They respond by saying Barabbas. They want Barabbas to be released. They demanded that a murderer and an insurrectionist be released. So again, Pilate tries to outmaneuver the the high priest by then saying, well, to the crowds, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Pilate's trying to appeal to the fact that they had already given earlier in the week that sense that this man was their Messiah, their king. The crowd responds, verse 13, crucify him. Pilate, again, attempting to change the situation, says, Why? What evil has he done? 
To which the crowds shout all the more, crucify him. Pilate then capitulates. He responds to this pressure politically. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, we read in verse 15, he releases Barabbas for them. His weak character and ultimately his evil character listens to the voice of the crowd, a virtual mob, allows himself to be politically manipulated in this way, and turns over to be crucified a man that Pilate is convinced is innocent of the charges that are condemning him. Now, what we need to appreciate here is all this political ploy that's going on around Jesus and the indictment, King of the Jews. All of it, part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. Listen to how Peter, uh, 52 days later, on the day of Pentecost, is going to describe what has transpired on that particular day. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up. He's got uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, surrounding him. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there Peter is declaring, Acts chapter 2, Peter is declaring that what has happened in all of this miscarriage of justice has been according to the determined and sovereign plan of God. Now, this whole perspective, uh, the political, religious maneuverings of the rulers of Israel against Jesus, according to God's sovereign plan, shows up again in the book of Acts, perhaps uh, within a couple of weeks after the days of Pentecost, when Peter and John, having preached the gospel, having healed a man in the name of Christ, are arrested by the Sanhedrin, held overnight, and then given a kind of trial hearing the next day. They are released... They go back to the rest of the apostles and the rest of the disciples. And this is Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. And when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they listed, lifted up their voices to God and said, now this is their prayer, and their prayer reflects this deep conviction that what has happened this tremendously great miscarriage of justice against Jesus is nevertheless within the planning of a sovereign God. And they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, then Psalm 2, verse 1 is quoted, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth 
set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they've quoted that. Then they go on to pray. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Peter and the apostles are saying here that that all of this humanly evil actions against Jesus, all the political playmaking that was going on, everything surrounding the indictment of Jesus, everything that pointed to Jesus uh, as a miscarriage of justice, but nevertheless indicted as the king of the Jews, everything that puts Jesus on the cross, everything that brings Jesus to the point of being crucified by the Romans and by the people of Israel, all of it according to God's sovereign plan. So Peter's point. It's also the the point of the New Testament. It's ultimately the main theme and storyline of all of Scripture. Is that the rebellion against God, which began in the garden, the rebellion against God that began in the garden and that climaxes in terms of putting the Son of God upon the cross, the most evil act in all of human history, that all of this is nonetheless the very plan by which God has determined to bring about redemption and salvation into this world. Now, I I want you to think about this. I would guess that, that when you have lived into your second, third, fourth decade of life, you know that you have been the victim of someone else's perpetration of evil. It may have been gossip behind your back that you didn't deserve. It may have been a situation that that treated you so unfairly. Uh, It may have been uh, people who broke your hearts without mercy. Uh, It may have been, uh, you know, getting into an automobile accident, totally not your fault, but the insurance companies and the law and the justice, just everything acted against you, and, and you feel that so much has been taken away from you. Whatever you have gone through in which you have felt the presence of something evil being done against you, and you're a Christian, and you think, Why, God? Stop and reflect upon this. The greatest evil in all of human history, the sovereign God used to bring about the greatest good for all eternity. You've got to remember that. You've got to think about that. You've got to connect that to the indictment of Jesus as the King of the Jews put upon the cross dying. The greatest evil in all of human history was turned by God to become the greatest good for all of eternity. Which means, whatever evil has happened or transpired in your life, where you have been victimized, but even more so, 
whatever evil has transpired in your life that you have been the author of. A sovereign God, because of the work of Jesus, the King of the Jews upon the cross, has a love for you in order to take that which is evil and nevertheless turn your life toward that which is good. This is our hope as Christians. We go through situations that just seem so unfair. We've also participated in things that we just have to say, oh God, I wish I had never done that. And I don't know what's worse, to feel like you're the victim of what other people have done or to recognize that you yourself have been the perpetration of certain evils in this world. Maybe you didn't want to be that way, but you did it that way. I don't know what breaks the human spirit more, especially in the life of a Christian. Either what you suffer because of what others have done, or the suffering you go through because you recognize you've done things to others that you can never take back. What is your hope? Where are you going to rest your life and find some kind of, of, of balm and healing for your soul? It's in the recognition that what God did in the greatest amount of evil in human history against His Son, He turned to bring about the greatest amount of good for all eternity. The salvation, the redemption of his people. Your hope is built on nothing less than understanding that as bad as you have ever been, the blood of Jesus covers it. And as awful as the things that may have ever happened to you are, they all still fall within the sovereign plan of God. So that in the midst of pain, in the midst of the things that would destroy you, you can stop and say, but wait, do I not have the promise of God's sovereignty that all things, not just some things, but all things, God causes to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. I could only hope that all of us might have the great faith that was resident in the heart and life of Joseph. At the end of his story in Genesis chapter 50, his father has died. His brothers are so afraid that Joseph, the second in all of Egypt, second to Pharaoh, will now turn upon them and punish them for all the evil they did against him. The sweetest words of forgiveness and reconciliation ever spoken. What you intended as evil against me, God intended for good 
so that so great a deliverance might come. What we, the human race, intended for evil against Christ, God intended for good, so that so great a salvation might come to us. The, the third uh, aspect of the title, King of the Jews, that we find in this passage is really located in verses 16 through 21. It's the title used as mockery against Christ. Second half of verse 15 is where it begins. Pilate had Jesus scourged. That was a normal procedure before crucifixion. No worse infliction upon any human being short of death than the Roman scourge. Incredibly painful and incredibly destructive practice. But then verses 16 through 21, we we recognize that Pilate allows the Roman soldiers to abuse Jesus physically and verbally far beyond what the Jewish temple guards had done earlier. They dress him in a purple robe. Now understand that they took his clothing off of him. His back is entirely lacerated from the flogging that he had received. And then they dress him in this purple robe to symbolize, in a mocking sense, royalty. They create this crown of thorns. Some of the things which I've read indicates that they were the, the long thorn that was current in Israel. They create this crown. They, they, they jam it down upon his head. And then they mockingly hail him as the king of the Jews. Uh, they strike him about the head with a reed. They spit on him. They mockingly kneel before him. All of these things they do around the title, Hail, King of the Jews. But what you need to understand is all that they're doing in mockery They did this, and they could only do this, because this was Jesus' choice. All that happened to Jesus, and in every way that it happened to Jesus, this is the path that Jesus chose. We we read about this in the prophet Isaiah which predicted and set forth all of these different aspects of the suffering that Christ was going to experience. But it also declares to us that this was by Jesus' own choice. So we go back to Isaiah chapter 50 in the Old Testament, verses 5 through 7. We have Christ prophetically speaking in his role as the servant, as the Messiah. And he says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. That's the choice and determination of Christ. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus chose this. 
all of this mockery, all of this physical and verbal abuse, set forth in prophecy as the choice that the Messiah would make to bring about the salvation of his sheep. Further on, Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The disfigurement that Jesus went through because of what the Roman soldiers did to him. And then in chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet... We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, the King James says stripes. The New American says scourging. By his wounds, we are healed. It was the choice of Christ, to be abused, mistreated, humiliated, mocked, disrespected under the title, the King of the Jews, with sarcasm, with physical torturing, with the greatest of injustices done against him. It was his choice in order that he would bring us our salvation. The scripture foretold it. It was God's will to bruise his son. It was Jesus' own choice to be bruised, to be crushed in this way. This is how Jesus, as the king of the Jews, chose to suffer, chose to conquer sin, chose and the whole process of redemption to subdue us to himself. Christ as king could convert the world through the sword. Christ the king would have the sovereign right to be a Machiavellian prince, to do everything he does simply by the power of his might to do it. Jesus chose the way of suffering. Jesus chose to bear our sin in the deepest humiliation. Jesus chose to put himself at the very point of evil earthly authority, although he was king of the Jews, to allow them, by his choice, to do to him everything they did so that in his suffering, the injustices of men, 
he would suffer and die for us to satisfy the justice of God. And to subdue us unto himself by the calling, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus means weary and heavy laden by your sin. And I will give you rest. Now Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. Now Jesus is lifted up and exalted high. Now Jesus reigns in the most incredible way from his throne on high over all the affairs of men. What then does that mean to you in terms of your life? How does this speak to you when things are very, very hard? If by his own choice Jesus chose to come into this world and suffer all the things which he suffered, he knows what you live with day in and day out. He knows the struggles of your heart. He knows the challenges of your circumstances. He knows the physical or the emotional pain that you go through. He knows your fears. He knows your sorrows. He knows your grief. The fact that Jesus is King of the Jews is not something we quaintly appreciate at Christmas time. To know that Jesus is the King of the Jews is to know that Jesus is the King of the universe, the King over all creation. But to know that he's not a King who is removed from the things which we have experienced in this world and in this life. What's most important is to know that all that Jesus went through and suffered, he did for us, his people, his sheep, those that he had redeemed by his blood. And it was his choice to do so. In your darkest hours, When things are hard, when you think on Jesus and set your eyes on him, remember, it was his choice out of his love for you that he came into this world and suffered and bled and died. Out of his great love for you, he did these things so that Jesus is always your great king who has subdued you by the grace of the cross and himself and who even now continues to conquer all of his and your enemies. And you can turn to him. Let's pray.
Father, make, make this great title of Jesus, King of the Jews, mean for us everything that you designed for it to mean for us. That we would see in Jesus the one that we would worship and, and give all of our treasure to. That we would see in Jesus the fulfillment of your great and sovereign plan. That the greatest of all evil done in human history, you, a great God, able to turn into the greatest good for all eternity. And to know that the choice to suffer and die for us was the choice of our Savior because of a great love for us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Motivate us. But also enable us to trust in every way who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray.